Welcome back, Brown Girls. Ashanti here, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Today is the first of two episodes where we are putting the spotlight on women of color leading organizations that mobilize people of color across the country to get active and make change. It is still rare to see women, especially women of color, at the very top in political organizations, despite the fact that women are overwhelmingly fueling political movements, but that is changing. This episode, we'll hear from two powerhouse Latinas in the progressive movement, Dr. Gabriela Lemos, President of Mi Familia Vota, and Myra Macias, Executive Director of the Latino Victory Fund. First, we'll hear from Dr. Gabriela Lemos, or Gabby as I call her, as she is one of my mentors. As the president of Mi Familia Vota, Gabby helps lead the organization's mission to build Latino political power. They do this by expanding the electorate, strengthening local infrastructures, and through year-round voter engagement. They also train the next generation of leaders by opening opportunities through their youth development programs. I really want to talk to you today first about the work that you are doing at Mi Familia Vota. Tell us, how did you become a part of this organization? So Mi Familia Bota invited me to be the president of the board of the 501c3, the, the education fund, if you will. Um, they felt that the knowledge that I carried with me and my networks and the work that I'd done, over the, especially over the last 20 years, would be valuable to helping them grow the organization, begin to look at the gender. It was heavily male dominated. So we were we were moving the organization, you know, to be more gender balanced and all regionally balanced. I represent the East Coast, for example. Although I am um this is gonna sound corny, I'm Mexican growing up in Puerto Rico, which from uh, Latino identity. It's just two very different types of identity. And um, they needed Latinos represent, you know, many countries, many points of origin, many experiences. And I had both the immigrant experience, the island experience, the urban and the rural experience, which, believe it or not, is something that factors into the thought process. And then my networks with organizations across the country and across allies, because any group that strives to build power and strength for themselves relies on their allies. And um, from there, you know, our, our founder, uh, founding executive director uh, resigned. And so we, um, I've basically been running it for the past year. So that's it in a nutshell. You guys are doing some really great things there. And I definitely want our listeners to know more But what I do want to focus on is we currently have an occupant in the White House, as Ayanna Presley calls him, who started their campaign by disgustingly calling people of Mexican descent rapists. And now we have him separating families. How has this impacted the work that you all are doing over there at Mi Familia Vota? So it's critical, actually. And in the 2018 cycle, we actually had some ads that were called trompaso, which was basically a hand uh, in a suit, a white male hand with, you know, looking like the president's suits, right? And the, the white shirt showing at the end with the cufflinks smacking people across the face. I know it sounds very violent. It actually, um, it, but it was very well done and it was done in black and white. And at the end of it, the people, you know, these are working class people in the images, and they are stopping the hand very gently from hitting them 
and basically saying, no, we're not going to put up with this. So that's just sort of a very graphic example, you know, example of, of the things that uh, how it affects us, because the impact truly because of this negative image that the president and and his followers have placed on immigrants and on the Latino community. At the local level, what we're seeing is um, it's impacting people in terms of how others treat them. And Friday, uh, or no, Thursday, excuse me, I uh, I was looking at some data that's recently come out by Equis Labs. And what you see is in the communities that what we call emerging communities, where there's smaller populations of Hispanics, the impacts are much bigger and people feel freer to discriminate against Latinos or immigrants in a much freer way. And it's verbal attacks, it's, you know, sometimes physical confrontations, but it's happening more and more frequently. And so the organization, our role as an advocacy organization is is policy, obviously, and to get communities, communities educated around how they can impact policy so that they work in a positive manner. The cultural aspect is a little more subtle. And I think the best way for anyone to fight back and to be counted is obviously by voting. So that's a big part of our work, if not the core part of our work, which is to get voters out. But it's all tied together. I really want to emphasize one of the things that you just said with how everything that is happening has a cultural impact. You and I met when we both worked at the Department of Labor. You were my boss. We worked for Secretary Solis in the Obama administration. We were in the Office of Public Engagement at the Department of Labor. And I remember one day I walked into your office and there was a huge stack of letters on your desk. And I asked you, Gabby, what is that? And you said it was hate mail that had been sent to the secretary for the work that she had been doing in the Latinx community. And I still think about that to this day, that people literally took the time out of their day to send her hate mail because she was making a difference, but a difference that she didn't like. And we knew that it was very different because it was directed at a woman of color. This is something we definitely see still today with several of the women of color members in Congress who are constantly being attacked. And we know it's because they are doing work that benefits women, black and brown people, young people, people with disabilities. And you just see all of the isms and phobias that are at play when it comes back to pushing against these strategies, these policies, these laws that increase diversity. And I'm sure this is something that you continue to see as you're doing the work at Mi Familia Vota. You know, it's funny. Uh, I think I wrote you a note. I, I had forgotten about that. Um, and and in a way, you know, I forget about it because it wasn't the first time I'd ever seen it. And um, and sadly, I have been the recipient of those kinds of things, as, as have others, you know, that I've worked with over the years in the civil rights space. And um, it's it's hurtful. I You read it and and there's the double, there's the misogyny along with the race aspect. And there's this perception that, you know, yesterday, or not yesterday, a couple of days ago, uh, talking to someone randomly, and he's like, don't you understand women are weak? I was like, he goes, like, you may not be weak, but everybody else is weak. And I was like, wow, way to discard 53% of the population, you know. Um, I'd like to see you have a baby, sir. <laughs> uh 
but you know that yeah i'm saying i'm i'm joking about it but it's a very serious problem because the cultural piece how do we transform culture that's where we're at right now and um i think part of the backlash and the reason that the white house for example has tapped into this sort of anger about the diversity it's it's being weaponized right you know my humble belief that anything that is good for someone else is makes makes them less than right it's something you're taking away from them which is a not a no i don't think that's a very smart attitude um you know i believe in um expanding the pie not taking the pie you have and shrinking it down and just giving everybody a little piece we're all able to build part of the pie that's how you expand the pie so the but the basic of attitudes um especially towards women of color are um difficult because as a woman of color you have to overcome not only your skin color or your ethnicity or your accent if you have one and by accent it could be your southern accent doesn't necessarily mean, you know, uh or your neighborhood accent, your regional accent, let's say. Um and then on top of it your gender, right? And this widespread perception that well women are weak, but they're also taking advantage of the system. Again, this goes back to this idea that anytime you someone takes something and empowers themselves, somehow you're taking something away from someone else. I think for us as we stand up against that um I think when we do stand up one we're doing it on the basis of we can because we know we have the personal strength inside us to stand up and um and we're the right person to lead right whether it's our city our county our our town or our school district or our school board or you know our PTA you know the mayor of San Juan gave me a little thing um after the hurricane and i had her speak at a conference and uh, she gave me this little wooden heart and um and she said i want you to keep this with you and anytime it starts getting tough i want you to look at it and what it says very carefully handcrafted is lead with love and uh, i keep that close to me and i think about that every time whenever i run into some kind of confrontation because if you lead with your heart and you lead with love and i think and you lead with with the idea that we're all in this together and united you know they may not change their perspective but at least you've done the right thing idea that we're really in all of this together and when you think about it there's just so many men who still hate the idea that women have an opinion even with the podcast i get hate mail from all of these men who tell me how they hate the podcast. We don't know what we're talking about. We're just dumb. And first of all, I'm like, sir, why are you even listening to the podcast if you hate us so much? And there's just this outrage that there's women of color actually coming together and being vocal about the changes that we want to see in society, the changes that we're helping make in, in society, and that we're encouraging more women to get involved. It's just, it's wild. Not really, but it's wild. I mean and this is goes to what I said at the beginning anything that we rise up and accomplish is somehow taking something away from them. Yeah, you know, I I know who I am and what I stand for and I also recognize that I'm probably a little more radical than most, but I recognize that. And I'm not a purity troll. I'm not out there trying to just get my way or the highway. That's not the point. The point is I'm willing to advocate on behalf of certain things. 
and I'm more than welcome the angry man to sit down with me and have a discussion, but it's not my way or the highway. And what, where I say that for me, it's the same for them. And if we're going to get to a point of compromise, I, I mean, this is, this is about major culture shifts. And sadly, what we're seeing is rise in misogyny. We're seeing a lot of violence against women. And then when you add all the isms to it, as you say, and the phobias, phobias of color and, and, and ethnicity and, language um very odd to me that language should be an issue but it is and um you know and then you add to the the, the conflicts that we're seeing on a global scale pushing people outward and the conflicts some of them come from climate change refugees climate refugees war refugees economic refugees um you know this is big this is a big issue one of the things that you said is that you see yourself as a little bit radical and you're a mentor to me. And we've had a lot of conversations about women and leadership, especially when you don't fit the mold. And there were so many meetings that we hosted in our office, internal people, external people, and you and I would be the only two women or the only two people of color. And we were telling them that, hey, we want to do these new things and had all these ideas, especially when it came to improving the lives mm. of women and communities of color when it pertained to the workforce. And a lot of these meetings were very interesting. And I leaned on you a lot during the time because there were just so many times where you would respond and laugh because... I was just so confused why people weren't excited about all the things that we wanted to do, the things we wanted to try. And at that, that time at DOL was just such a learning experience for me. Change, it's, it's the change comes from introducing, sometimes it's introducing the same idea over and over again, just in a different fashion. Sometimes it's, um, you know, and, and, I love when people are like, oh, but we have to be incremental. And I'm like, oh, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, it's like, you know, sometimes it's not going to be incremental. It's just going to be in your face, right? Um, but, um, you know, I mean, when you're in an organization the, the size of the Department of Labor, um, I, I mean, you have a lot of different types of people there, wonderful experts in their specific areas. Um, and then, you know, we were political appointees, so that gave us a, a, a different place. Um, we weren't there permanently. People were going to be coming and going, um, and, and we were the people going, and they were going to stay, right, the civil servants. Um, so, you know, changing that culture is always a lot harder because they're also – there to do specific jobs but then from the political side where we, i think this is where you and i kind of were like what um you know this is just how the way things are done and we're in charge and we're going to do it and your voice is nice to hear you thank you very much but we'll take it under consideration and, you know whatever you got to that point you knew well we're going to have to fight a little bit harder we haven't made our case and I really do just want to say thank you. Like I said, you are a mentor to me. And we have one final question for you, Gabby. What advice do you have for the brown girls out there listening saying, I want to be just like her? Have a plan, a strategy. Make sure you're bringing people along with you all the way. Don't be afraid to ask for help. And um, when I say a thick skin, it goes to that point you were saying when we go into the meetings. And the meetings would be like, okay, here we go. Got my heart in my throat. 
because I'm going to pitch something and it's not the popular idea. And, um, and like those mean people who send nasty hate letters, there's lots of different types of quote unquote hate. And, um, and it's just really easy to dismiss a new idea as unworthy. So hang on to it, stick to those values of yours. And, you know, it could be that your idea, the timing isn't right. But that doesn't mean the idea is wrong. It just means m maybe you need to work at all the pieces. And that's the point. And that's what struggle is, right? We're struggling to move an idea forward. Um, whatever it is, you know, it could be changing technology for all our girls out there in the tech world, right? Um, and having the guys listen to you and then they got up on you, whatever. It doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means you got to figure out a better way to communicate it, get your message across, and then have the strategy in place and how you're going to move forward. At least have an idea of who you need to have inside working with you because your allies are really important. That is such great advice. Thank you, Gabby, so much. I love and appreciate you. Thank you for giving us your time. As the first woman to lead Latino Victory, Myra Macias is taking the organization to new heights. The Latino Victory Fund is a progressive political action committee working to increase Latino representation at every level of government. From school boards to the Senate to the White House, Latino Victory identifies, recruits, and develops candidates for public office while building a permanent base of Latino donors to support them. Congratulations on being the first woman executive director of Latino Victory. You started off as the political director, then the vice president, and now the ED. And I remember when I saw the press release come out, I let out a little scream because I said, yes, she's the perfect person for this. But tell us what brought you to the organization and what are some of the amazing things that Latino Victory is doing? I did Teach for America after college. I graduated during the Great Recession um, and there were not a lot of jobs. I was very grateful to have gotten a job with Teach for America and got placed in a school in Miami. While I was teaching, I, I'm from Chicago. And so I grew up in like a Title I school um, on the South side of Chicago. I thought I understood what it meant to be in an under-resourced school. And it wasn't until I was actually in the classroom teaching um, and having to spend my Sundays at Kinko's making class sets for my students because, um, you know, at our school, we only had the capacity to make uh, an individual set or sorry, a class set rather than individual sets for students um, or realizing that my students' very ability to come and just learn was hindered by so many factors outside of my control and outside of the four walls of my classroom. You know, I had students who um, came into school very sleepy during my second period class. And as a, as a teacher, you're frustrated because you don't understand what's happening in your student's life. You just see a student not paying attention. And when I finally talked to that student, she told me that she had to stay up late because mom works the graveyard shift and she has to stay up with her siblings and make sure that everyone's okay until mom comes home. And I taught sixth grade language arts. So these are our kids that are 11 to 13 that should not be dealing with adult problems. And it was at that moment that I realized not everyone has the luxury or privilege, you know, to wait to 
dismantle our current system or to come up with a new um, form of government that is truly equitable because folks need action now. Um, you know, my students, everyday lives were impacted by policy decisions made at the state level and at the federal level. And rather than, um, you know, be frustrated about all of the factors that I couldn't control that impeded on their ability to just come in and be kids and learn, I decided that I wanted to help elect folks that understood the needs of communities like the one where I come from, communities like the one where I taught, um, and truly fight for those people, fight for those voices that often get overshadowed um, or are not brought to the forefront. And so I've worked in Florida politics for many years. And when the opportunity came to work for Latino Victory, an organization you know, who's electing progressive Latinos up and down the ballot, it was the dream job. You know, I'm very um, proud of being a Latina and very excited about the prospect of our community and just how much strides we've made as a community, but also understanding that we have so much work to do to realize our political potential. Latinos are vastly underrepresented in essentially all facets of society, but particularly in politics. You know, we're about 18% of the population and around 1% of elected officials are Latinos. And so uh, it was honestly the perfect job to be able to come and, and use my skills and past experiences to help elect folks that are going to fight for Latinos, that are going to uplift our voices and that are going to make real change uh, and real change now. And I think you just really hit it on the head when you talked about the fact that we have to have people who have lived those experiences in elected office because I remember in one job I had there was where I focus on education, income, and health there's an illustration of a young kid with a backpack going to school and with the photo, it's like, oh, I have my backpack, but I'm also grappling with hunger and hopelessness and a parent who works late at night. And so many teachers just fail to factor those in that there's other experiences that kids are dealing with. But when I do listen to Latino elected officials, Asian elected officials, African American elected officials, they're able to relate so much better because they said, you know, this was my experience and I wish someone had asked me what was going on. And that's something that you did. You asked your students, hey, what's actually happening here? So as we mentioned, we're coming off the November 2019 elections. What are some of the highlights for you from election night, what are you excited about and what kind of trends, themes, movements did Latino Victory see? Before I even delve into what happened yesterday, I'd like to take a step back and talk a little bit about 2017. Uh, and so I, I always share this anecdote about Elizabeth Guzman, who's one of those candidates that ran in 2017. So Elizabeth is a Peruvian immigrant. Um, she had been involved in the 2016 election as, as an activist. Uh, organizing in her spare time, hadn't really conceived of running until her then 11-year-old child was talking to her about Trump. And as we all know, this president initiated his campaign by denigrating Mexicans, anti-immigrant, anti-Latino, anti-people of color rhetoric throughout his administration. So 
Elizabeth is having a conversation with her child and her child says, mommy is, is Donald Trump going to deport us? Is he going to make us leave this country? And Elizabeth was so shocked to hear that her 11 year old child was contending with these questions that, you know, didn't feel like they, like he was at home in this community. And so she decided to step up and run to, to prove that um, people like Elizabeth, Latinas, immigrants had a place at the decision-making table. And luckily for us, she is an amazing candidate uh, along with Hala Yala, uh, really worked on engaging the Latino community. And we saw amazing results. Not only did they win their races and, and, and make history in Virginia, but because of the work of organizations on the ground that were really focusing on them, because of you know organizations like Latino Victory that supported them and invested heavily in the state in 2017, Latino turnout was at an all-time high. And not only was it an all-time high in their particular district, so their district, 51 and 31, um, had Latino turnout at a higher average than the state. So there are a ton of delegates that also got elected in Northern Virginia who also saw a surge in Latino turnout, in part because there was an investment made you know, in TV and radio, and that investment in those media markets bled over to other districts. And just to give you like a scope of, of the turnout increase, uh, in 2014, Latino turnout in Elizabeth and Hollis districts combined was at 24%. In 2017, it increased to 40%, which is almost doubling. And and that and that margin, you know, like we we at Latino Victory, we believe that when Latino candidates are on the ballot um, and they're speaking to our community and they espouse the values of our community, Latinos are going to turn out, and they're not just going to turn out for Elizabeth and Hala, right? Elizabeth and Hala are the entry points of engagement for Latino voters in Virginia. But all of a sudden now I'm paying attention to the race and I see that at the top of the ticket, there's this candidate on the Republican side for governor who's spewing anti-immigrant rhetoric, who's using images of actual prisoners in El Salvador and using that to scare voters and saying, you know, if you vote for Ralph Northam, if you vote for Elizabeth and Hala, these are the kinds of folks that are going to be walking in your neighborhood. Right, like literal images from a prison were used in, in TV ads and mailers. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for candidates stepping up and running and not just, you know, to elect and have better representation, but because their ability to mobilize and engage voters, in this case, Latino voters, has a reverse coattail effect and helps turn out voters of color uh, and again, in this case, Latino voters for the top of the ticket in a way that like maybe folks wouldn't have been paying attention because those campaigns might not have been investing in the same way that a local candidate can invest and have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. Absolutely. Because so many times people always talk about the top of the ticket, the top of the ticket, and they don't realize how these down ballot races, I mean, let's be honest, sometimes people are more excited about their down ballot local state delegate, state representative, city council, county commissioner, than they may be for the top of the ticket. So in, in my opinion, I think in 2017, 
it was those races with Hala and Elizabeth and all the amazing other women that flipped seats in the House of Delegates that helped drive turnout and help the top of the ticket. Um, so we saw a lot of that groundwork being done in 2017. <clears throat> and last night, we saw these women get reelected. And along with these women were, you know, many other first time candidates that helped flip both chambers in the Virginia Assembly. So the Senate flipped first and then the House. And for the first time since 1993, Democrats have a trifecta, meaning we control three facets of government in Virginia. But beyond Virginia, we also had an amazing race in Arizona. And in 2018, you know, Arizona flipped a U.S. Senate seat with um, now Senator Kirsten Sinema beating Martha McSally. Um, Martha McSally was appointed to the U.S. Senate after Senator John McCain died, and she'll have her first election in 2020, or rather, yeah, her first election since appointment in 2020. And I think that the election last night in Arizona was a harbinger or a, a foreshadowing of what is to come in 2020 when we engage communities of color in a state like Arizona. We're slowly seeing that Democrats, that progressives in Arizona are winning more seats. And Regina is one of these folks who won this mayoral seat in Tucson. And what is so huge about this win is that she became the first woman and the first Latina to be mayor of the second largest city in Arizona, which now makes her the only Latina that is a mayor of a one of the largest uh, 50 cities in the US. Uh, and, and it's kind of incredible that we're still breaking glass ceilings, that we're still at a point in our country where there are so many barriers to overcome and we're still making history by electing you know, very accomplished and experienced women like Regina. And you're so right, because there was a big focus on the state house races, and not many people are looking at what happened in the other races, particularly the city council races, these mayoral races. And when we just even look over the past few decades, when it comes to women mayors of major cities, women of color mayors, it's always hovering between like 10 to 15 percent which is just so low given our demographic numbers. And something that you've been talking a lot about is the investments that need to be made in candidates and races. And we know that a lot of that also means donations. And when we think about money, people you know, always tend to think that it has to be millions of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars and that they can't give at that level. So there's no place for them. But Latino Victory, you all also focus on increasing the number of Latino donors. And we do a lot of work at the BGG with Act Blue around educating women of color about how easy it can be to give to campaigns and causes and how your $5, $25 a month really does add up and can make a difference in these races. So what are some of the tools and methods that Latino Victory uses around getting more people to donate and get involved on the finance end? So the, the mission of Latino Victory is ultimately to increase Latino political power. And 
pipeline that we need to really build, particularly within communities of color, is this donor pipeline. And as you uh, very aptly said, there's this misconception that to be a donor, you have to give large sums of money when, in fact, most of the donations that drive a lot of these progressive candidates and, and national organizations are these grassroots small dollar donations. And so what Latino Victory has been trying to do is educate our community around the power that they have when they invest and not just educating them on, on how to donate, but really practicing it in our organization so that we are also uh, building capacity because we cannot endorse and invest in candidates unless we have the resources to do so. Uh, we have and are, are unveiling the launch of a program called the Ambassadors Program, uh, whose goal is really to do that, to get young people, young professionals started starting to use that muscle of, of giving political contributions at um, pretty low dollar amounts. Um, so we do this in a couple ways. One, we've been very much invested in having more local events um, that are reasonably priced because sometimes it's easier to give when you're getting something in return. We'll have, uh, we had something to kick off Hispanic Heritage Month where we, you know, charged anywhere from 30 to $50 for entry and you get a drink ticket. And, and for folks that's easier, right? Like I'm giving you $30, I'm getting a drink ticket, I'm getting networking opportunities, I'm building community. Um, but what folks don't realize is that it's those like initial entry points. Like I'm giving $30 today. It, it's, you know, it seems easy, but then when I make a little bit more money, like I will feel more comfortable writing a hundred dollar check, writing a $200 check, writing a thousand dollar check, because I've had that experience of giving once before. That's so important because one, it gives access to folks who wouldn't otherwise have access to these candidates. But two, going back to this idea of like reshifting our mindset around political giving, you know, your hard earned dollars, you're going to be paying more attention to what they do. You're going to be more invested in ensuring that they win. You might even pick up a phone and phone bank for them. You might knock on some doors. You might post about them and tell your, your friends and family to also contribute because now that is something that you have invested in, that your hard earned dollars have gone towards and you want to get a, a return on your investment. So you're going to do everything you can to make sure that that person wins. You've talked about all the truly awesome things that Latino Victory is doing. What are three ways that our listeners can support your work or get involved? Um, please follow us on social media. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Latino Victory US. We'd also appreciate any kind of donation that you can give. Flex your donating muscle. Uh, and you can find our, our Act Blue link at uh, latinovictory.us. That is our website. Because in order for us to be able to do this work, you know, we really rely on, on finding candidates who are grounded in the community, who are grounded in public service, uh, and who are going to put in the work. You know, running for office is not easy at all. But the folks who understand what's at stake who understand the impact they can make, who know what it's like to be othered and dehumanized and want to uplift the voices and dignity 
of our community, those are the folks that we're trying to find and we're trying to support and ensure that they are at the helms of government, at the da- the dais and, and city council, um, city council governments all over the country, walking the halls of Congress, um, leading in state capitals. And so to the extent that you can convince your friends to consider running, start planting those seeds now. And I do want to move into our final question with you. So for the listeners, what advice do you have for the brown girls out there saying, I want to be just like her? Well, it's something that if you ask anyone in our office, I constantly um, shout out. And that is that closed mouths don't get fed. It would have been so much easier many a times for me to just ask folks for help. And I don't think I understood if we're not advocating for ourselves, if we're not asking for that raise, if you're not asking for the promotion, no one's going to give it to you. And so the closed mouths don't get fed. I say generally speaking, like, and I say this to our interns as well, it's, it's a good sort of mantra to have in life, but particularly in politics, there's so much happening. Um, we're always fighting the next battle. Everyone's always under-resourced. But if you don't advocate for yourself, no one is going to hand anything to you. Make sure you visit the show notes to find the websites for these great women-led organizations and how you or others you know can support their work. Stay up to date with us in between episodes on the BGG website, www.thebgguide.com, and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Until next time, Brown Girls. Women are often faced with the challenges and pressures of doing it all and having to be the first or only in the room. As you know, on the BGG pod, you have heard me and our guests talk about the challenges of feeling like you don't belong in politics when so many people around you don't look like you. But it's just a little easier when you've got someone else who's been there, has your back, and can share smart, practical advice. On For Future Reference, a new show from Wonder Media Network, Host Ambar Cavilla Rivera and Tori Taylor bring a weekly dose of balance and rail talk with women who are in the same boat. They dig into topics like modern day mentorship, building authentic relationships, doing it all or not, and what it really means to survive and thrive. They have candid conversations about failure and success and how women have stepped in to help lift them up in professional and personal ways. It's advice and food for thought that you can use now or just keep around for future reference. Listen to new episodes of For Future Reference every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.